Hey, Linux Journal readers, I'm Catherine Druckmann. I'm talking to Doc Searles, our editor-in-chief, and Dr. Augustin Fu, a prominent ad fraud researcher who will now tell us about all the cool things that he's up to and, and who he is and what he does. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> Great to be on the show. Um, well, basically, I consider myself a digital marketer uh, who happens to be doing ad fraud research right now because what we're talking about these days is, you know, in digital marketing, it's really the perfect intersection of technology and marketing. And I've seen too many cases where technical people like the coders and the developers don't understand marketing and vice versa. Marketers don't understand the tech that they're using. So I happen to be in a, a very unique position where I can see both worlds. So that's why I'm researching ad fraud. And as you know, ad fraud is the current scourge that is going on in digital where bots can pretend to be people and they can cause a lot of ad impressions to load and even pretend to be uh, those people on their mobile devices. And that's why there's a lot of fraud in digital marketing because unlike in the physical world where there's a finite quantity of TV ads or print uh, pages where you can put an ad, in digital it's practically infinite. And when you combine that with the concept of surveillance marketing where they're tracking everyone because they think they can do better marketing because of the data and target, um, that's where we really start going off the rails. So that's the fun stuff that I research these days. I, I just like to add that uh, um once I started discovering what uh, Augustine was working on and that he he publishes uh, pointers to on uh, on Twitter where he's at ACFOU. So he's done a nice, short, easy to source um, <laughs> ad handle there. Um, I, I highly recommend following him um, because to me, he's the leading researcher on ad fraud in the world and his research is 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 copious and detailed and authoritative and always mind-blowing to some degree it's kind of like you know you look at the ocean and you know something's going on below the surface there and then when you get down there you get you know 20 feet down you realize oh my god there's no idea you know and then but if you go down to where it's really dark <laughs> you find these really <laughs> horrible looking animals that are eating each other and have light bulbs in their heads and the rest of it that's kind of where we are with this thing and he's the guy down there you know um looking at this stuff and it's it's sort of fascinating and appalling at the same time so like many highly things, recommend right? it so so that speaking of of the the depths of uh, depravity <laughs> on <Yep. laughs> on the internet and and in the the area of marketing um, so Doc has talked a lot about surveillance marketing on, on the podcast and, and elsewhere, um, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about some of the, you know, the, actually the, the darker sides, the, the greater dangers and something in particular, you know, who, who is affected most by surveillance marketing and, and who is at risk? And who is it? Yeah, well, it's pretty who much is it? The... But I think there are certain <laughs> populations who might be more vulnerable. Yeah. To certain dangers. And... I guess I'll start with those who um, don't believe that there's a danger to them. So what I still find baffling is that when I talk to millennials, younger people, um, they say, oh, well, since I have nothing to hide, I don't care uh, if the government's watching or the companies are watching and Facebook is watching and everybody's watching. So to me, that's baffling because, you know, as an individual, um, just like Doc has always said, in the physical world, you wear clothes to signal that you don't want people to see your private parts, right? But there's really no equivalent uh, in the online world. And in some cases, you'll see these millennials voluntarily posting nude selfies on Instagram, right? Or almost nude selfies and stuff like that. And they have no problem posting it. But what if at some point in the future, they decided to not do that, right? Oh, it was a terrible idea. I shouldn't have done that. Um, do they have recourse, right? So in some of those cases, it's the um, millennials and the younger people who, um, you know, who have all this technology that are actually uh, compromising their own privacy without really knowing it. So I think they would be the most affected. But if we think about the concept of surveillance marketing, it kind of all um, can trace back to the concept of the long tail. 
right? Chris Anderson wrote about this a very long time ago. And in theory, it makes sense that there are whole bunches of websites that are so niche in their content that uh, there aren't a whole bunch of people going to each and every one of them. But when you put it all together, um, you know, there's enough of mass, right? And because of this, I would call it a misconception, right? The way we've taken the concept of the long tail into digital marketing is that we now think we can reach any person um, anywhere, uh, you know, online, no matter what site they happen to be visiting. And because of that, um, we have to track the person because we have to say, oh, it's this person and they did something over here so that when they show up somewhere else, we can get an ad in front of them, right? So I think a lot of marketers buy into the concept that um, we can target any individual at any time, anywhere they go online with the right ad. And I think that's misguided because that's actually led to what we now call surveillance marketing. The only way they can do that is by tracking everything. And furthermore, when the person uh, expresses their uh, dissatisfaction with that, right, by either blocking ads, blocking cookies, deleting cookies when they exit their browser and things like that, we now can track them using cross-device fingerprinting. So that way, even if they deleted their cookies, we can still track them, right? So over time, those pieces of technology have built up to the point where the consumer now has no privacy, even if they wanted to, uh, even if they wanted it, right? So the long tail has then led to digital marketing that has become surveillance marketing through the tracking of people. And people have no recourse. They have no way to check the data, no way to express that they don't want this to happen. And I'll use a simple example that probably everyone listening has uh, experienced, right? When you look at a product on Amazon uh, in one minute, by the next minute, that exact product that you looked at shows up in a banner ad on the next site that you visit. And people universally think that's creepy, right? I think that's creepy. Um, and it's because you have no recourse. You have no, nothing you can do about it, right? They're tracking you whether you like it or not, with consent or without. Right. Well, I guess the consent in their mind is that the, the, your only recourse is to never have shopped at Amazon in the first place. But I mean, you know, that doesn't seem like a great world to live in, does it? Yeah. And it kind of gets back to uh, a concept that, uh, you know, poor people pay with their privacy. Right. So when you're using free services, um, you know, basically it's not actually free. Right. We all know for sure that uh, nothing in life is free. So right. even if it doesn't cost any money, there's some other value being exchanged, whether you know it or not. Right. And so for most people, um, you know, when they're using Gmail, they kind of have in the back of the mind that, OK, I, I kind of know uh, Google scanning all my emails and literally looking at every word in every email so that they can target ads at me better. Right. And so that's been the um, kind of unspoken contract. But I think that what we've seen in recent years, right, with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, with Facebook and all that, um, it's gone far beyond what uh, consumers and individual persons expect it to have, right? I might be okay with the first party uh, knowing my data, right? So when I go to a site, uh, they are the first party and I know I'm visiting that site. I might be okay with them using my data but they didn't tell me that they sold it to somebody else and those people sell it and use it and do other things with it that I have no idea and can't control, right? And they'll come back and say, oh, well, it was in the T's and C's that you agreed to. Well, how many consumers actually can read the legalese in one of those privacy policies, right? So if a human has to visit a uh, hundred different sites and each site has a privacy policy but that no one can understand, that's really hard problem, right? That's a really hard problem. But, um, you know, if the consumer or the person has a right to express their own privacy policy, right? So instead of a privacy policy per site, it's a privacy policy of the individual person. Uh, that becomes uh, the equivalent of clothing where they can, in the digital world, where they can now express or signal 
what they want public and what they want to keep private. I think that's a framework that now needs to uh, see light of day because the surveillance marketing that is digital marketing today uh, can't get, can't go on. It, it yeah, it, uh, some boy, several thoughts there. Um, uh, one is on the on the subject of um, of an exchange. I don't think I mean generally when you think of an exchange in economic terms, you have two independent actors who consciously decide to have an exchange. Somebody exchanges money for a, a product, for example, or for a service, or you or you subscribe to something. Um, that's not what's happening here. I mean, basically, um, stealing something is rationalized as an exchange. We're taking your data and, and we're, we're creating a, a four dimensional shell game where, um, where what's actually going on is completely opaque. Um, I mean, it, 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 your work, yeah. Augustine is, is probably the best, um, x-ray into some of that, that we have. And it's, and it's for all it's detail is woefully incomplete because it cannot be understood even by the people in it. And, it, yep. and, and with part of what they rationalize is that, you know, saying, Oh, well, you know, here's, you know, have you read our privacy policy or, or our terms and conditions? First of all, privacy policy is nothing more than a statement of intent. It has no binding um, yep. uh, legal basis at all. It's just, a, it's a nicety that you can put up. The, the terms and conditions are also so one-sided and so difficult and complex that there's no way anybody could reasonably yeah. read them. And and there have been studies that say you could spend your entire life doing nothing but reading the 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 the, the legalese, as you put it, of on, on these sites where you presumably agree to something you really didn't agree to. So yeah. in addition to that being broken, there's this other problem where all of them, you know, there was sort of the the default right now on the on the IAB especially the IAB Europe model, because they created a kind of design for this that would be GDPR compliant, which it isn't, um, is that um, uh, you, you, you click on the cookie notice and then it, it says, oh, if you actually want to select anything about the ads that you see, you go to something called Ad Choices um, done by the Digital Advertising Alliance and, and, you, and, and you look at as many as several hundred different companies, none of which you've heard of other than Google yep. and Facebook and Amazon where you can selectively say who you're, who you allow to track you and who you don't. And yep. you have no record of any of this. The all the other side has all the records and all they have on you is a cookie they stuck in your, in your browser. Yep. It's completely insane. It's completely unworkable. Um, and what, one of the most amazing things about this is that the perpetrators of this have so fully rationalized it that they actually think it works. I mean, it's incredible, but they do. And, and the whole thing has to be blown up and we have to come at it. The only way the only way it could be fixed, and I think you were just saying this, is 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 from the individual side. It's from the user side. And and I think a big part of that is what we're working on with customer commons is where the user becomes the first party, where the individual becomes the first party and globally expresses his or her preferences. Yes. Um and either as a preference that could be respected and recorded in some way uh, by both sides or as a contract that both sides sign and both sides keep and can be adjudicated later if a harm should result. Yes. Um, and that's, you know, basically to turn the thing around. But we've already done that. We did that with TCPIP. We did that with HTTP. We did that with IMAP and, and SMTP by giving the world protocols that put us all in a flat place where everybody is more or less an equal, potentially equal player. So anyway, yeah. just wanted to throw that all out there. Um, that's a great point. And uh, I'll get into the concept of the difference between theory and reality, right? So you said TCP IP, you know, it, it is equal to everyone. Everyone can use it, right? So in theory, we're supposed to have a flat internet. Right, that is not biased to favor any one party or, or whatever. But in actuality, uh, the way the internet has grown up is that it's an ad supported model, right? Everything has been ad supported because the very first websites like Yahoo, um, they aggregated content into a directory so you could find it, but their revenue model came from the banner ads that loaded on those web pages, right? 
So I'll kind of look ahead and and make a statement. But but that was that was a riddle that was in some ways no different than what we've always had with print in the offline world, which is, yeah, it's ad supported. What we do with Linux Journal, you know, Uh, yes, but yes, but let me let me explain why. Um, in the offline world, when we're talking about producing TV shows like content and producing magazines, that, that kind of content, in those cases, there was a very, very large cost of content right, to create those. Mm-hmm. But in the digital world, and you look at the trend over the last 20 years, the cost of content has come way, way down because the tools of production have gotten so good and so ubiquitous that any user can get content online, literally by snapping a picture and posting it to Instagram. Okay, so let me kind of go into a little more detail because I think it's worth spending the time on. Mm-hmm. So previously to make a TV show, obviously extremely expensive and there's only certain people with the right cameras and all that kind of stuff that could do it. And furthermore, the TV stations were the only one who could broadcast it out to a whole bunch of people, right? Mm-hmm. But as we start thinking about and this is where I'll kind of talk about the concept of the fifth internet, and I'll kind of play through each of those um, in sequence. Uh, the first internet is basically HTML, and most consumers wouldn't know how to do HTML, so they couldn't get content online. So in the early days, it was people who could code HTML, and those are the ones who worked at companies and can get content onto web pages. Then when Web 2.0 came along uh, with the rise of blogs, uh, uh, blogging platforms like Blogger and WordPress, then people didn't actually have to know how to code. They could just write the content into the blogs, and that's how it would get online. Right? So those platforms made it easier to get content online. Web 3.0 are the social networks. right? So when Facebook came along, um, you know, and there were early ones like MySpace and things like that, but MySpace was very music oriented, right? Facebook was more generalized. Um, anyone could now just type a post, right? A short one, all that kind of stuff, and uh, or upload a picture. And, and that corresponded with the rise of smartphones as well. So, you know, instead of having to go back to your computer at your desk to do it, more and more people could actually do that in, in the moment, so to speak, right? And Web 4.0, which is, uh, or sorry, Internet 4, Web 4.0, is something that most have not considered, but I consider Snapchat and those ephemeral messaging apps and messaging apps in general to be a little bit different than social networks. Because in those social platforms, when you post something, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like your badge of honor. You want it to stay there. In terms of Snapchat, you know, when you post something, you only care that uh, other people see it for just the moment, right? And once they look at it, it goes away. So in, in terms of those messaging services, that's fundamentally different than when you post something on Facebook and then you, you can look back at the entire history of what you posted. For these ephemeral messaging platforms, it just, you know, you send the message, uh, you post something and it's gone after someone picks it up. So it's fundamentally different. And Web 5.0 is where we now have to take into account um, Internet of Things, where not only is the individual posting something, but pretty much every device is posting something, right? Or uh, sending out and receiving information. So think about the connected fridge, the connected webcams, the connected traffic cams, and things like that. What happens when you now have all of these uh, devices posting information, right? So we kind of think about, uh, let me bring in, say, fitness trackers, right? So those, uh, for convenience, they're posting your stuff to, say, Fitbit at all times. So you don't have to manually sync your thing, right? It's done for you automatically. So biometric data like heart rate, um, you know, your running schedule, all that kind of stuff is uploaded, right? And when you add on top of that, um, you know, the smart thermometers, those are constantly posting data. And I kind of call that ambient data or biometric stuff. Those you don't even need to consciously post anywhere. They're just sent somewhere into the cloud. So because of this evolution, uh, more and more people can get stuff online, right, into digital. And now devices are getting stuff online. So the amount of stuff is so large and the nature of that stuff, it, you know, we haven't contemplated the privacy policies that are needed to protect that, right? So, um, you know, whereas 
compared to the physical world, when someone wears clothing, right, they signal they want to protect private things. Uh, whereas in digital, we don't have the equivalent. And let me tie that all the way back to the way the internet has grown up, which is everything is ad supported. So when everything is ad supported, you take care of the party that pays your bills, and that's the advertisers. Right. So right now, all of surveillance tech, all of surveillance marketing is created uh, and interwork to serve their their only customer, which is the marketers. Right. Um, we need to turn that around and we need to put this person, the individual human person in the middle. And if we do that, the only way we can do that is to reinvent the Internet because the current business model of the internet, even though the technology is flat, um, the current internet is entirely ad supported. But I don't think that's necessary going forward because of what I said earlier. Um, the cost of content has come so far down that there can be individual people who create awesome content, right? I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, nice, uh, well done videos and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Doc, I'll point to one of the examples you shared with me, which is when you're looking up a digital camera, right? You read the one person's review about the Canon versus the Sony. And in that case, that person didn't get paid. Uh, that person has no advertiser they need to satisfy. But because they were really passionate about that topic, you know, they had a Canon camera. They wanted to compare it to the Sony camera. And they did an awesome job creating that piece of content. And that piece of content alone meant more to you because in that moment, you were looking for some objective advice so that you could choose which digital camera to buy, right? So in that case, um, the cost of creating that content was the time that that individual spent. And um, he had the expertise and the passion to do it well. And so, in that case, that single piece of content, right? Talk about long tail, right? It was that literally that individual piece of content that had super high value for you because it was meaningful for you in that moment. Um, if it were ad supported, think about all the totally crappy sites out there that's all viral, right? They just plagiarize a whole bunch of celebrity photos and stick whatever else on there that they can find. And because their revenue model is to generate as many ad impressions as possible. Right. So you can see the night and day difference uh, between the quality of one piece of content versus the enormous quantities of sites that have no value whatsoever, but whose sole job is to cause more ad impressions because that's how they make money. So and, and, and in the midst of this, I, I just want to sort of flesh out some of the uh, what what's happened in um, really with Web three through five. Um, as as you've outlined it. And by the way, I think this comports with with uh, what uh, Kyle Rankin of Linux Journal has also put up, but it may have been somebody else. I just recall it as is. Um, is that because the it is so easy to create content and to create new sites and to create um, and to create bots and to and to fake up content in other words very simply put it's much easier to write fake news than it is to write the real kind <laughs> exactly. right exactly you yeah. know and you can almost do it automatically and and you can have sport with it you know i mean the, the yeah. kids the kids in macedonia make had fun during the u.s election by you know with with stories like yep. pope endorses trump and you put that up and and you have you have 10 sites that point to each other and then you know, Google's um, uh, algorithms look at that and say, oh, these things are all pointing at each other. This must have some importance. Uh, it moves up so that they, they can roboticize tweeting and retweeting and create fake characters there as well. Yep. And it's, in other words, that's, this is what makes it a shell game. You don't know where the, you know, you don't know what's real and what's not. Uh, it really is misdirection. It's pure magic in the sense of misdirection. Magic is basically misdirection. You believe yep. things that are not true. Yep. Um, and and this could be automated and 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 scaled up massively. And a, a collateral effect of this, in addition to um, us just a not really knowing what to trust and what not to trust, um, all of the terrible um, economic effects this has and, and, and the rest of it is that for us in the journalism business, 
um, it has incentivized the publications of the world to do content production just to play in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a really great piece in the New York Times a few years ago, uh, just two years ago, I think, um, about how the Newark Star-Ledger, a, a great paper that I grew up with in New Jersey, um, uh, you know, was, you know, now in basically they don't see their reporters as reporters. They see them as content producers. Yep. And their job is to generate the maximum number of page views with as many stories as possible, which absolutely and utterly compromises and violates the imperatives, the moral imperatives of journalism in the first place. And that's a terrible loss. And it's also one, and, and we're both sort of in the same boat here, which is when you try to talk to the journalism business about this, they're some, now so pickled in it, they can't see any other way. Oh, yeah, yep. of course. You, of course you have to do that. You have to maximize patriots. Let's just have as many stories as possible here. Yep. You know, oh, let's have videos on here. Let's like flog some videos. And uh, and it's it's not only completely out of control, it is utterly and completely cheapened what journalism is in the first place to the point where I, I feel with that that we're sort of where you are in talking about how we need to create, you know, the the sixth Internet or the the, the best version of the fifth Internet. Yeah. Uh, you know, where do we go with this? Um, it's it, we can't we can't we can't fix this terribly broken system. It's sort of like, how do we fix the cancer that that took over this? We got to get rid of the cancer, but I'm not sure what's left after you do. You know, that the, it's yeah. sort of like it's a bot. It's a snatched body. You know, none of the yeah. millennials I know know about the body snatching movies, but that's what happened. And in fact, uh, what is disease now looks very uh, not much different than what the body is. Right. So when you have an autoimmune response in the real body, the problem is that you can't tell what is foreign, a foreign invader versus well, what is your own point. body. Right. That's a good analogy. So in this case, yeah, yeah, because of the proliferation of low cost crap content, uh, people have become used to that and they they really are losing the context and the ability to judge the trustworthiness of content. So for example, this is another thing that's happened when we moved away from sites that carry content, right? So previously in web 1.0, you had New York Times writing content and you knew that when you went to nytimes.com and you looked at the content, it was written by an actual writer or journalist, and there were actual editors who would really push the envelope and check the facts and all that kind of stuff. Now, when you take a story and you post it on Facebook, that individual piece of content has become abstracted from the site from which it came because most yeah. people don't tend to look at, oh, where did that actually come from? So because of that fact, because you lose the ability, you lose the context with which to judge the quality of the content, that's what led to everything that happened in 2016, where even a piece of fake news, as long as it got posted to your uh, stream, you read the headline, oh, yeah, I kind of agree with that. Let me share that, right? So people share that without actually checking the sources, right? So that's what I meant by the atomization of the pieces of content. Now, each piece of content needs to carry new forms of context with which the users can judge the trustworthiness because they are being abstracted from the sites uh, from which it came. So now any new site, like literally if you just look through Facebook today, right, we're talking two years after the 2016 stuff. if you literally look at the source, you'll say, what the heck is this site? I've never heard of it. And some of it is just so obviously fake that, you know, if you just looked, you would know. But again, a lot of people have the bad habit of, you know, if they if the headline and the blurb and the picture fits their worldview, they're just going to share it. Right. Yeah. So that becomes how fake news and everything just continues to pervade, um, you know, pervade uh, the Internet right now. Yeah, it, it, it drives me crazy sometimes when I see an email from somebody or a piece, an actual piece on the on the web that doesn't point to the first source of something, but points to the source, to, to some place that has sourced the New York Times piece, for example. Yeah. But it's not the New York Times. It's some other site. And very often they'll post a link that has all the tracking cruft appended to it. You know, you can yeah. put a, a little question mark at the end of a link and then a whole bunch of tracking cruft after that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, even even a bunch of alpha geeks will do that. They don't think that, that that's not the real URL. 
that's yeah. that's a URL with a whole bunch of spyware appended to it. And and some of it is sort of legitimate. I mean, you get an email um, from a, I mean, let's say you belong to a mail list that you trust, and they're using MailChimp or one of those, and every link will have a bunch of stuff attached to it. And mostly all they're trying to do is is see whether or not you clicked on it. And yep. that's not too bad, but you really have no way of telling because it's opaque. You know, yep. that it, it's essentially all of the tracking cruft is by its design encrypted. Um, yep. And that's not good. That's that's a wrong way to approach that. Or, or even if it's not encrypted, it's still opaque to the user because most exactly. uh, consumers I mean, it, it, won't know what the heck that it's is. Effect, that's what I mean. It's effectively encrypted. Yeah. It's been, it's been made cryptic by design, so yep. nobody's going to look at it and say, "I think this might be doing this or that." You can't. But you know, to to kind of get back to so yes, all of that is because we are still in an internet that is supported by surveillance marketing. Right. So yeah. let's think ahead and how do we uh, invent something new because we can't fix the current system because everything and every party is set up to for its continuation. Right. Everyone has an incentive to keep this going because they're making money off of it. Right. So, you know, and the consequences are journalism is in jeopardy. Right. Good content is in jeopardy because even the good publishers have enormous pressure for them to write crap content just to generate more page views because that's the only way they can make money. Right. Yeah. So let me throw in two concepts here. Um, the first is ephemeral content versus evergreen content. And the second is the concept of trust history. So ephemeral content would be things like news where you report it today and nobody cares about it tomorrow, right? The best example is weather. Okay, so you report it today, you care about it really a lot today, but by tomorrow, uh, you don't care about okay. yesterday's weather. Right. Okay, so that's ephemeral. The second is evergreen content. And that would be going back to the example of uh, your, the guy who wrote that comparison between the Canon camera and the Sony camera. Um, for the next guy like you who is doing that exact search, that piece of content would be super valuable, right? So let's kind of hold that in the back of your mind because that's evergreen and it can continue paying off. And then also similarly, journal articles, right? So Linux journal articles or New England Journal of Medicine, there's some medical articles where, okay, our knowledge of cancer is going to be the knowledge of cancer, right? And that's, that has some yeah. evergreen characteristics to it. But how do we actually judge the trustworthiness of each piece of content when each piece of content is just an atom? and it's been abstracted from other things, right? So I use the concept of trust history because it all boils back down to the concept that the only scarce commodity in our known universe is time, right? As far as I'm aware, no one can make more of that, right? right. So trust history will then be the basis of a security mechanism or a trust mechanism where it takes a long time to build up trust, but you could lose trust in an instant, right? So mm -hmm. think about this piece of content, uh, like the camera, Sony camera versus Canon camera. As more people use it and say, oh, this was really, really valuable, uh, the trust history of that continues to build as more people give that kind of affirmation. For example, mm -hmm. through a signaling like, oh, they shared it. Okay, People will share things that they think are valuable. They're probably not going to share things that they think are total crap and useless. Right. Yeah. So in those cases, the more that piece of content, I'm, I'm trying to make it simplistic here, but the more times that piece of content is actually shared by real people, now you've built up a trust history over time to say, oh, well, that piece of content keeps getting shared and it's like six months or it's 12 months or it's 18 months. There must be some value in that. And to the extent that you can see that trust history, right, not necessarily the individual steps in the trust history, but the fact that this piece of content has remained so valuable to individual people that over time it keeps getting shared then now you've built up a trust history so that the next person that comes along will say, oh, well, now I have reason to trust that, right? And they, they can now, it makes their kind of purchase decision uh, a lot easier. But if ever a piece of content violated that trust or it gets no longer shared, um, then kind of that trust history terminates, right? So you can almost just look at the length of the trust history to know whether it's trustworthy or not. 
And some of that is kind of like I'll use a you know modern world uh, parallel, which are, or today's world, uh, you know, like the Yelp reviews or mm. Amazon reviews. Um, you know, people are getting more and more savvy to the point where they can say, oh, well, if that Yelp review was from a year ago, you know, I would probably put less weight into right. that than the Yelp yeah. review from yesterday. And furthermore, if a restaurant has 500 reviews, that's probably more trustworthy than, you know, restaurant with five reviews that all say it's great. Yeah. Right? So in that case, um, even though I don't know any of the 500 people who wrote those reviews, on average, the more reviews there are, the harder it is for a bad actor to game that. Right. And I think that we've talked about this before, the Amazon example. You know, I asked the question theoretically, can a Walmart.com come out and beat Amazon.com? Why or why not? Right. I'll cut to the chase and say, I believe that Walmart cannot assail Amazon. Uh, even if Walmart.com can sell as many products as Amazon.com and sell every single product at lower price, the reason they won't be able to overtake Amazon is because Amazon has 20 years of reviews written by their community and associated with each individual product. Right. And on top of that, we have reviews of the reviews where now the community has also given it thumbs up and thumbs down to say, was this review helpful to you? Yes or no. And over time, to the next person that comes along, they're benefiting from all those little bits of work that have gone before. So now they're reading the most valuable positive review as well as the most value, uh, valuable negative review. Right. right. Because the community has bubbled up the good stuff for them. And reviews that say, oh, I like the product gets bubbled down to the bottom. Right, so they don't have to waste time looking through those. Yeah. So I think that's really the concept where we can use the, the concept of trust history to now give context to each atom of content, even if they're dissociated from the sites from which they came. Can can you build the next web without those platforms, like the the, the Amazon platform and so forth? Do yes. We, okay. Tell us how. Um. So then it gets to uh, thinking about every device as an atom as well. Okay, so let me put it simply. Uh, we talked about each piece of content being an atom in this mm -hmm. new universe. Each device is also an atom in this universe, and each person is an atom in this universe. So each person uh, now, okay, so think about an atom, right? There's all these electrons flying around it. There's a, there's a nucleus, right? But the electrons you can think of as kind of a, uh, satellites that orbit around it. Those electrons will have characteristics. So say, for example, um, just imagine a word cloud. Okay, so there's going to be certain things that this person is interested in. So you would have, say, some keywords that have, that have more weight than other keywords, right? So you can kind of mm -hmm. deduce, oh, this person is interested in these things. Now, mm -hmm. note that those things change over time, but nonetheless, think of it as, you know, these a cloud of keywords around this atom. Then when you think about a web page, um, you can also think about that as an atom with a uh, cloud of different keywords around it. And you can now calculate a similarity score, right? I'm again trying to be super simplistic about this. Um, depending on the overlap of the keywords of the person and the overlap with the keywords of the page, you can now determine a similarity score. So that page will be, oh, okay, this page with this content on it is going to be most pertinent to this person or these people, right, if you start extending it out. And then finally, if you apply the concept of an atom to the ad itself, the ad is no more than a piece of content, just like a picture or whatever, but it's, it's very simple. Uh, you can also have keywords around that. So now you can calculate the similarity score between the person, the page of content, and the ad. And whatever has the highest similarity score would be the three that you put together. So in that case, you can do ad targeting uh, without needing mm -hmm. to violate privacy, right? Because I dissociate the keywords of interest from the bits of data that have to do with identity, right? The person's name, you don't need for that. The person's email address, you don't need for that, or their physical address or their email address. None of that is pertinent. It's just the similarity score between these items. And then the other important thing to think about is a permission model. Right? So now I'm going to bring back the device, right? So say it's a webcam 
or some, some kind of IoT device. Um, each atom also needs a permission model around it. And what I mean by that is, okay, here's a fridge. It has a CPU and it has an internet connection. So right now it's being abused by bad guys uh, for use as a bot because it can just command it to repeatedly load web pages, right? But if you think about that fridge, um, if the fridge accesses, um, you know, wholefoods.com or, um, you know, weather.com because it wants to reorder groceries or show you the weather in the morning, those seem fine, right? Those are legitimate uses of it. But if that fridge starts to repeatedly pound on citibank.com, something's wrong with that, right? So a priori, you don't know the relationships between different atoms or in this case devices. But over time, you will establish what is normal for one device to do versus something else. And then when you all of a sudden see things that are out of normal, then you should look into it. Right. So similarly, you know, that's a concept that I use in studying fraud. When we see things that are out of normal, uh, you know, we right. can usually pick that out as fraud. But let me pause there and just kind of see if that makes sense in terms of the. Well, I, I, that that very last thing you said, um, and I realize I, I, I'm. I'm Risk squeezing Catherine out of this conversation. No, Hi, Catherine. I'll jump um, in everywhere. Is okay, is okay. is that this is what um, uh, the NSA, when it behaved well, um, did, uh, which is it's looking for what's anomalous and then investigating that. Rather, yep. in other words, you you don't surveil the entire world because you're you you think mistakenly that having infinite knowledge about all things. Yeah. Um, which I've been told is the Laplacian fallacy that yep. Laplace imagined a, a a higher being that could if if a higher being knew whatever what everything was going on you could the, the, everything is therefore determined that it's possible to know that of course he didn't know what Heisenberg said later um, but but that but you you simply look for you know wait a minute that's that's a rogue activity there not similar maybe illegitimate it might be legitimate you don't know but you look for those things and they're you know, you 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 dig down to the pattern breakage. You're mindful of privacy while you're doing it, and then you back out again if you you stick with it. If you find something, you back out. If you don't, yep. um, I, I, mean, it, I mean, there have been other people have have looked at, for example, you know, the uh, the, the way people search on the web is maybe an indication of, you know, that that you're actually shopping at this moment in time, and then you find something with that. Yeah. The, the 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 problem that I have with starting with perfecting advertising rather than perfecting shopping or more more importantly perfecting the means by which we keep others from imagining that we're shopping when we're not yep you yep. know i mean um there's a a, a great case of um a, a guy we know is a name i'm forgetting at the moment um had a, had a great movie several years ago called um terms and conditions may apply and and he talked about how, you know, the FBI or somebody came, law enforcement came after this guy because he's looking up how to dismember bodies and all kinds of horrible things. Well, it turns out he was a writer for Hollywood and he was just imagining plot plot approaches. Right. Nice. Um, it was it was definitely a false positive there. And it was a pretty interesting, a pretty interesting case. Um, but but the interesting thing is that we are not shopping for anything. Ninety nine point X percent of the time. Yep. You know, we're just not. And and, and we're, even when we're looking online, a lot of times we're just fantasizing. And and another problem, and this has been much bigger to me lately, is that one of the fallacies of advertising is that a party with a single parochial interest of its own, let's say Audi, okay, that Audi is going to help me, really help me when I'm looking at SUVs or I'm looking at yep. four-wheel drive cars. They're only going to give me the Audi point of view. That they're yep. going to give me a perfect message is just wrong. They're going to yep. give me a biased message no matter what. Nothing wrong with that if I'm watching the game and an Audi ad comes on the game and they show me why an Audi is better than any other car. Yep. And I might believe that. That's going to have a much better effect on me, especially since I know I'm not being watched. Yeah. Um, and, and I can support that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's so – so um, I have the examples. Let me let me share go some for it, go for that it. I've seen over the years. So um, do you think more people search for digital cameras or Canon digital cameras? 
right? It should be obvious. Most people search for digital cameras because that's the thing that they want. They're not yet set on which brand, right? Right. So in search, uh, you can do this on Google Trends yourself or anyone can. Uh, just look up uh, the thing, which is digital camera, and then literally try any brand. There's not a single brand where you type in Canon digital camera or Sony digital camera where the search volume on the brand thing is going to be higher. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, basically the person is looking for a digital camera. It's whoever can give them the information they need to then move further along their customer journey, right, in their kind of purchase decision process. Um, whoever is going to give them that information that helps them is going to win the sale. Yeah. So if Canon had more reviews and better reviews on Amazon.com than, say, the Sony one, which one do you think the consumer will end up buying? Right, they're gonna they're gonna end up buying the Canon one. Uh, and furthermore, if uh, you know Kodak or Fuji had better search results uh, when someone was looking up information, right? So thinking back to your example where you looked that up, uh, looked up a piece of information. If uh, Fuji had better search results, meaning they had pieces of content that were better SEO'd, uh, search engine optimized, um, you know, and the person found that and that satisfied. Uh, what they needed now so they can move on to the next step which do you think which brand do you think has a higher likelihood of winning that sale right so in those cases uh, we can already see in the customers habits when they do search that's the ideal time to get an ad in front of them right because the search ads are based on uh, the keyword that they typed at the moment they typed it Right. So compared to all this, uh, you, you can also talk about carpet bombing, right? Mm -hmm. You're literally uh, trying to throw a net out there uh, to try to get your message in front of everybody, whether or not they like it or not. Uh, and you know, even if you do the targeting, like by buying a certain day part or buying a certain channel that has, you know, uh, this particular demographic watching that TV show, those are all still approximations. Right. The most precise will be when the person tells you they're looking for that. Right. Mm -hmm. But a concept that I teach in marketing is, um, you know, when the person is expressing that, uh, that's the time to get the ad in front of them. But the job of marketers uh, is entirely different in this new world than it is in the old world. Right. Because in the old world, kind of think back to the TV show here in the U.S. Uh, called Mad Men. Right. Yeah. It was uh, glamorized where the creative came up with the cool tagline and the jingle for the TV ad where they were given a product. They had to think up how to market it, like what to say about the thing and then think up who to target. Right. And that's all the targeting and that kind of stuff taken to the nth degree in digital. Um, that was the job of the marketer. Now, in the modern digital world the way it should be, which it's not there yet, but the way it should be is where the marketer understands the needs of the individual first, uh, thinks about whether they have the content, including the ads that help answer those needs, those informational needs uh, that the individual has on their own customer journey and whether they've actually made it easy for that person to buy the thing uh, as, as easily as possible. Now there are many ways you can do that. You don't even have to go to the store to do it, right? So in that sense, the job of the marketer should be entirely different in digital than it was in the offline world. But it kind of gets to another point uh, that, I, that I talk about, which is uh, digital uh, marketing has not fulfilled its true potential yet because most of the marketers are still using it as if it were a reach and frequency medium. So they keep asking for more and more and more impressions to buy, thinking that if they can get their ads in front of more people, that that's going to help drive uh, sales, right? That's really an offline concept translated online. And so, you know, again, I'm throwing a lot out there, but, you know, I use the baseball analogy to kind of explain where we need to go with this, right? You can't play baseball without having both pitching and catching. And in modern marketing, the way it should be done is you need to have pitching through one-way channels like TV, print, radio, and now uh, billboards to make people aware. But you also need to do catching in the digital channel because if you think about the modern consumer's habits, when they see a TV ad and they get inspired, uh, the next thing they do is to go online and do some more research, right? 
And at that point, if you don't have the content there ready to go, or those Amazon reviews that have already been written, uh, you're missing out on the harvesting of that demand in digital channels. So digital should be more of a medium for harvesting demand rather than bombarding everybody with as many ad impressions as possible. So, so I, I want to unpack that just a little bit. Um, first, um, uh, our friend Don Marty, who I think everybody yes. here knows in the sense that he he's a former editor in chief of Linux Journal uh, and should be familiar to our especially to our long term readers. Uh, he works for uh, Mozilla now, but he's been but he also helped me write the advertising chapters or research the advertising chapters of my book, The Intention Economy, which I wrote mostly in 11, 2011. And one of the one of the best pieces that he sourced is one called the the, the waste in advertising is the part that works, um, uh, by a couple of alpha researchers I don't know in the eighties or something. But but the point they made was that was that brands are made not necessarily by targeting exactly the right people, but by targeting broad and general populations that become familiar with the brand and and get an economic signal that says this brand is important because because they can afford to advertise they're sending an economic as well as a creative a creative sing, a signal and um and and so a, a good example of that is like I, I i am not in the market right now I have not been for many many years for insurance but i know 15 minutes will save me 15 percent with geico because <laughs> yeah. i because i watch and listen to a fair amount of sports and sports uh radio and and I know about progressive insurance because they sponsor their uh, progressive call in line. And 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 those those two companies have doubled down very much over recent years. They've both grown a great deal against the state farms of the world and the all states of the world, in part because they've done old fashioned brand advertising. But they also do with and in this case, say that's the pitching side, but they also do the catching side. But I don't recall ever having been bothered by a progressive or a Geico ad. Uh, through ad tech. I don't think they do that. Or if they do it, they do it so smartly yeah. that I've never been creeped out. And Or maybe they know pretty well that I'm not in the, uh, I've, I've been a Liberty Mutual customer for yeah. decades and I'm not, I'm not in the market, which is entirely possible, but it creeps me out to even think that is. Well, wait till the agencies get to them and they start doing that, then they'll definitely creep you out. <laughs> well, well, that's, so, so that's, that actually goes to one of the places that that's close to home for us with Linux Journal, which is um, we, you know, we stopped advertising in in, in any way uh, a while ago. Um, but but we have sponsors and and sponsors. We want sponsors. We want sponsors for the same reason that public radio wants sponsors. Right. They they want the people to subscribe, but they also want the the parties whose interests are aligned in some way or or who want to get a message in front of the audience um, to, to sponsor us because it, it, it's an appropriate buy. I mean, yep. if you're making motherboards, you know what? Our readers are pretty good, pretty close to a bullseye, right? I yep. mean, um, you're not going to reach as many as you might in some other way, but you know, the, the motherboard makers of the world, or, you know, the, the Linux laptop makers of the world, um, uh, you know, the, the, the sysadmin supporters of the yep. world and the general geeks of the world would want all to ought to be, sponsoring us in some way and we're glad to run the ads that that sponsor them yep. and that's that that's, that's the, the better picture. model that's a better model and that's a better um, yeah go ahead sorry because I, I think that the marketers still believe in a uh, misconception which is by reaching more people more frequently they end up selling more so that's a whole reaching right. frequency that's mentality a, and and i think that's that you did get sales out of that in 1958 Absolutely. you know when right. there were so, TV networks and one newspaper in every town. And and when people were simply not aware of Tide. So everyone in advertising goes back to the Tide example. When we did more TV advertising, we sold more Tide. Of course, because, you know, people went from not being aware to being aware. And that's why more people bought it. But again, there's a big difference between correlation and causation, right? Now, you know, if you think about it, I'll, I'll use a pharma example. They think that if they increase the number of ads they show to oncologists and the frequency of it, that those oncologists would buy their drugs more. But there's mm-hmm. a finite number on oncologists, first of all, and they can only prescribe so much oncology drugs at any given time. 
-hmm. Or a simpler example is my family drinks four quarts of milk uh, every week. No matter how much milk advertising I see, we're not going to buy five quarts of milk because we don't need it, right? So the U.S. economy and the U.S. mentality has for a number of years supported that because we built consumerism, right? We convinced people to stock up and buy more even if they didn't need it. So now they have so much stuff that they even need to buy mini storage or, you know, stuff to put their stuff in because they ran out of place at home, you know, ran out of room at home to put it. But that's, you know, over decades of this misconception of if you show more ads, you're going to sell more stuff. Right. So uh, what you said earlier, which is if some of these brand advertisers, if they actually chose to run the experiment, they can cut out probably more than half of their uh, advertising dollars and not see a single drop in their business outcomes because most of that brand spending is redundant and useless. It did not drive more business for them. It would have been better spent if they used some of those, do those dollars to create content that helped people further along in the journey. Right. So if the awareness is not the problem, right, everyone is already aware of your brand and product. Doing more awareness advertising is a complete waste because they already know your brand name and your specific product. They have questions that remain unanswered when they go online and search for something. So, for example, again, going back to your example, um, can we can the screen on that camera fold out 90 degrees sideways? OK. Uh, very few other people have that exact need, but do you think it's going to be easy for you to find that answer on the content on Canon's website? No, because they never even wrote it. They never even thought about it, right? So yeah. if you found or, that or, answer. Or if they did, it's just hard to find. I mean, yeah. like this city of one camera that does that. Um, but th if they wrote that to piece of content, dig, yeah. you would say, wow, that does satisfy it, and I can move on to the next step in my purchase process, and therefore you're going to get to your purchase much faster. Right. So, 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 yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I, I just mean like that's kind of the, the, the reason why a lot of digital marketing is still wasted because they're still taking a reach and frequency mentality into digital. But Instead, was, you should be thinking about a different balance between offline stuff that you're doing and online stuff that you're doing. So right? here's a, a really weird thing. I, I just realized that in the old world that I grew up in, before there was anything digital, right? You know, so um, the, the the world of print television and radio, Cre uh, Crest Toothpaste became the number one toothpaste by saying this, and I'm going to tell you this off the top of my head. Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice that could be of significant value. Let me get at the rest. When used as a conscientiously directed and applied program of oral hygiene and regular professional care that like a jingle was burned into my head as a kid who was nine years old in the 1950s because like i don't know some authority conferred upon crest that particular phrase they put it on every tube of toothpaste and they said it on television endlessly so i mean so endlessly that everybody knew it by they, they knew this horribly poorly edited um in the in the passive voice sentence, but that's because it was content. In other words, you know, it wasn't pure branding. In other words, they yeah. worked the content into the branding rather yeah. than in some other place. You know, and, sort of an I mean, fact. bottom line is branding does work. I'm we're not saying that branding doesn't work, yeah. but we're still way overspending on what we think is branding to the point where people actually get creeped out and ticked off when they see the same damn ad over and over again. So even to this day, if you watch uh, football on Sunday, right, the number of times progressives show the same exact damn ad and the number. So this this past Sunday, all the all the games, uh, it was insurance um, and it was car commercials. Right. So it was literally the same exact ads over and over and over again. To the point where I actually think there's negative branding, right? I started to hate those brands because they they couldn't come up with something different or new or innovative or helpful. They just kept showing the same damn ad over and over again. So to me, it's like they're actually hurting their brand because of that. Yeah. Right? So it's really, a, a you know, like you need to find a new balance between uh, just uh, bombarding people with ads and actually serving them with real content, like you said, that's actually useful to their purchase decision.
So, so Catherine, where do yes. we stand? We're way over an hour. We're, we're, and, we're and, a bit. And we've, we've got <laughs> we're 10 hours long. more of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's what really I'm really interesting that we haven't even touched on. So I'm thinking, given that, you know, our audience is, you know, made up of mostly technologists, right? The geeks of the world. Um, I think I think that a, a good ending point is really a cliffhanger. And I think I feel like we should have another conversation. And, yeah, I do too, and yeah. what we really need to get into is where the te- where our audience and where the technologists and the geeks of the world fit into all of this. Like we're not going to change, you know, the toothpaste company's mind or the 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 the, the car company's mind on, on their ad strategy, or at least not right now. Um but, you know, there are a lot of these ideas that we've brought up that I think we could revisit. Like, frankly, I want to get together a group of epidemiologists and a group of geeks and have a conference and, like, fix <laughs> fix media, you know? I think that would be a good Well, here, so here's a, here's a thought. I mean, and, and this is a, a big part of this. And I, I think almost every editorial I write in Linux Journal, almost everything I've written over the years, all ha- always has a call to action. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. hey, Hey geeks, help us with this. And I think there are two sides to this. And and of course, you know, I'm um, Augustine is working on the on the on the marketing side, and, and I think he has a brilliant idea um, uh, with this sort of atomic view that is non-surveillance based, but does get some of the targeting targetability that that marketing is looking for, and that's on one side and. And I'm on I'm I'm on the other side, uh, you know, in, in my sort of non Linux journal world, um, which is where I'm I'm sort of like the attorney for the customer. I'm 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 the guy who's saying, you know what, we need something that happen that works on the customer side. You know, it's sort of like, I, I you know I want the equivalent of if we go all the way back, word processors and spreadsheets and calendar and contact and rudiments of of of, of customer agency that give them control over how they interact in the world that the marketers of the world, they, they can manage how they deal with the marketers of the world. And there is a, while there's a fair amount of activity going on there, it's not coherent. And a lot of it's competitive with each other and they don't want to use the same terms, which means they don't cohere into a, into a single um, uh, category. You know, I mean, I've tried it with, with VRM and with customer tech and even 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 the places we store data are variously called uh, data vaults and lockers and uh, personal information management systems and life management platforms and customer customer managed uh, uh, data customer managed relationships. I mean, everybody has a different name for this, and as a result, nobody knows what the hell it is. And and yet we need something. We need stuff in that space. We need ways to say what's private and what's not. I mean, we, we are getting it now finally with terms. We're getting that with help from the IEEE. We're getting it with customer commons work, with what's going on at Kintera around around uh, uh, standards. This is all good. Um, it's all could, also gonna take several years to play out. Um, uh, but in the meantime, we there's an awful lot of development needs to happen there. And then Linux Journal is in the middle of that. Because Linux Journal, you know, wants wants to be and is a publication. It's working both for the subscribers who are on the individual customer side. They're among the atoms that, as it were, that uh, Augustine's talking about. And on, and they have atoms as well uh, in their devices and their content and the rest of it. And and on the other side, we have the brands of the world that want to be able to reach the right people and where we're, we play a possible intermediary role. What is that? You know, and all that shit needs to be worked out. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. So I think the way I would like to uh, kind of leave it with the listeners is I would like to invite listeners to think about what they can do from their respective uh, perspectives and expertise and things like that. How would they make digital clothing for the modern yeah. human? Right. Digital clothing means just like in the physical world, they signal what the uh, the intent of the person uh, in digital. Uh, how does the digital clothing help the individual person signal privacy as well as protect privacy? That's 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 of course that's a I, I love that and it's a metaphor I've used for for, for quite some time that we we have we have we've had this ever since we learned how to how to peel animals and and weave things for. 
for many millennia in the physical world, and we've only had like 23 years to work on it in the in the digital one. We don't have them yet, yep. and yep. we don't have we don't have a simple way to signal what's okay and what's not okay. And because that's not there, and what can be done in tech will be done until you can find the limits. Um, yeah, and it gets back to the AdBlock Plus thing, right? So even when there is something that allows us to you know, signal our privacy, that gets compromised because they have to make money through advertising, right? So AdBlock right. Plus was downloaded by users expecting it to block ads for them. But then AdBlock Plus, in search of a revenue model, basically sold out and let Google pay them to let their ads through. So then ultimately what was a useful tool for the user is no longer a useful tool because they violated the, the user who downloaded them in the first place. Yeah, or, or it's useful to them and they don't know how it's being useless. Um, I mean, I know at least several people who who got Adblock Plus entirely for the brand value. <laughs> you know, it's like it's the most popular one. It's the one their friends use. They use oh, it. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, and I point out to them, hey, you know what? Well, they, they think that it's supposed to block ads for them. But they don't know that AdBlock Plus is secretly taking payments from all the big companies to let their ads through. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and to let the tracking through. Yeah. And I've had many conversations with them and they're they're fully rationalized. You know, oh, no, we allow you to block tracking, too. But it's yeah, an because it's, quote, unquote, it's, a good ad. Right? Yeah. Or, or, or but you actually can turn on tracking protection and you can opt out of the um, acceptable ads program if you. Yep. You know, um, if you know where to look and and throw the switches, but they don't want you to go there, yeah. Uh, because and Google doesn't want them to go there either. You know, so it's a it's a it's a crazy system. So we have, so we have future podcasts to work on here. And I and I'd like as this goes up, I don't know how much response we get on this. I mean, comments in general on everything have been going down over the years, yes. Un unless of course it's just clickbait type content. You know where where it, it, it's Reddit locally and, and everybody wants to write something. But. Well, I, th I think in the case of podcasts, it's tough because, you know, you, I don't know how other people listen to podcasts, but I don't listen to them on my laptop. I, I you know, I right. listen to them to them yeah, in the car. And so right, and I have thoughts. I can't comment, car, so. you know, yeah. <laughs> at that point. So, you know, the, what are the odds of me going back and seeking out the website for that podcast just to make a comment? And slim to none. Yep. That said, we welcome it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>